When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Because we all do get discouraged sometimes. Things aren't moving as fast as we want. Or you get you get turned down by something that you were really hoping for. Or someone provides some feedback, often unsolicited, that is uh, not very encouraging. And any of those things can really feel upsetting and destabilizing. And if you already were in a mode of questioning, that's the moment where you're, you're kind of at risk of giving up. Hey, it's David. And you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. I am delighted to welcome our guest today. If you don't know Dory Clark before this episode, you're going to be glad you tuned in. Uh, Dory Clark helps individuals and companies get their best ideas heard in a crowded, noisy world. I'm going to have to take a breath just to get through these accolades, but I'm going to do this because you need to know who you're hearing from today. She's been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50, honored as the number one communication coach in the world at Marshall Goldsmith's Coaching Awards. You're not with us on camera necessarily, but we just got a guest appearance from her cat, Philip, beautiful cat who wanted to be seen. Uh, Dory's a keynote speaker, teaches for some outstanding business schools, Duke University, Columbia Business School, and is the author of several highly regarded business books, including Standout, which was named the number one leadership book of the year by Inc. Magazine, and the book we're going to be talking about today, which I cannot tell you how awesome it is. It's called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And as if all of that weren't enough, she's a former presidential campaign spokeswoman, a a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review, consults and speaks for Google, Yale, the World Bank, graduate of Harvard Divinity School. And then it gets fun, producer of multiple Grammy-winning jazz album, Broadway investor, and get this, even does stand-up comedy. Maybe not on this episode, but stand-up comedy. Dory Clark, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. We're so glad you're here. Hey, David, I'm so glad to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's going to be our pleasure. I want to dive into this book. This is, you know, I feel like a parent, you can't say you love your your children differently, but I'm telling you, I read a lot of books and of all the books I have read in the last year, this is possibly one of the most meaningful, impactful, at least for me personally, and I think for everybody listening today. So thank you for writing this book. Before we get into it, though, I want to just so that we can warm up, get to know you a little bit ask you if you could take us back and tell you about your earliest memory of yourself in life as a leader. That's a great formulation. I love it. So my earliest memory of myself as a leader is probably running for student government when I was in middle school. (laughs) I I was very, very obsessed with politics when I was young. I just always liked it. I don't really know why, but I thought it was great. And so when I was in third grade, I, on my own, you know, this was not a school assignment. I did a project where I drew pictures of all of the 
presidents and I, I made portraits and I remember kind of causing a little bit of a ruckus because I, there was like, you know, an art show and I wanted them to display all, you know, whatever it was 40 or, or whatever of the, of the pictures of the presidents. And they're like, Dory, we can't have 40. Um, can you pick your favorite? And I was so sad. I'm like, but this misses the whole point. You've got to um, have the collection. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was rough, but, uh, but I was very inspired to, uh, you know, to run for class office when that became a thing. Nice. I love it. Okay. I have to ask, who did you choose? <laughs> you know, I, I picked a combination of the ones that were like the most notable presidents. And then I also overlaid it with a Venn diagram of which drawings I thought were best. So it was a little bit non-scientific. I'm pretty sure I had Jack Kennedy in there. I, I think there were some strange ones where it's, you know, like the ones with a really big sort of mutton shops. Yeah. Cause those yeah, were fun I'm, to draw. Yeah, exactly. I'm just like, well, that's a great picture. So like, okay, bring it Franklin Pierce. <laughs> Heck yeah. Well, see, that's a leadership skill right there is you have to identify your decision criteria, right? Uh, so am I choosing based on what I thought of their presidency or am I choosing based on how fun they were to draw or how well I think I did drawing them? Fantastic. Okay. Taking us back. Cause I also ran for in sixth grade student council, student body president got elected. What lessons did you learn or one thing maybe that you learned in that journey? So what I learned in that journey was, first of all, it was, it was not terribly competitive, <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think that, you know, serving, serving in student government and, and things like that, it was, I think in my mind, it was just part of this package of kind of like, you know, ner nerdy kid leadership things. Like I'm, I'm going to do all the, all the things. It was not necessarily leadership in the way that we think of it now in the, uh, in the corporate sense. When I think about the hard things or the important things about leadership, I think this is probably the distinction. Leadership as a grown-up means things like how do you have really hard conversations and not be afraid of that and not shirk it and how do you make people feel good about themselves and want to be doing what they're doing it's a lot more subtle and so i think that the middle school version of leadership which ironically many people go into adulthood still having is how do i make a really cool poster What's my slogan going to be? And that slogan I, is so important. It's so important. And I think that is great when you're 12. I think if we're still operating uh, with that when you're 42, it's <laughs> it's become a problem. A little bit of a problem. I got to tell you, just from that conversation, Dury, I already know that you were probably a more effective and more popular student council president than I was. I I was the hammer. There was no subtlety. I threatened to cancel the school carnival because some classrooms were misbehaving. What? <laughs> I still can't believe it. I can't believe that the adult sponsor let me do that. Lay it down, David. Did, that's that's amazing. Did I nearly get jumped by, you know, a, a, yes, yes, I did. But that's another story. All right. <laughs> I love that story so much. That's great. Let's get into Holy cow, this book, uh, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. As I said, thank you for writing this. I love the voice uh, that you've written with. The writing is 
And these words are getting overused as important as they are, but it's authentic, it's vulnerable, it's, it's raw and real and, and meaningful and incredibly practical. You know, when you, in the introduction, which is, again, I, I, people who listen to the show regularly know I am not full of this level of accolades all the time, but it's one of my top two favorite introductions in any book I have read in the last five years. So I'm thank just going to put that out there. There you go. So thank you. I mean, that's, that's some work to do that, but do that. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to put it in top three. There's, there's two other good ones. Now I have to ask, what are the other good introductions? It's a, it sounds like you have this like running chronicle of awesome introductions inquiring minds want to know. Well, you know, it's because writing an introduction, as you know, is not the easiest thing to do, or at least I don't find it easy in, in writing them for, for our books. And uh, so, you know, as I'm, as I'm going through and constructing that and saying, wow, somebody's done a really good job here. This draws me in. It makes me want to read it. I am compelled. I am already in love with the author and who I'm reading and what I'm reading about. And yes, I have to read this book and good intro does that. And yours absolutely does that. So I will post the other two in the show notes because I don't want to get authors names incorrectly. And then we got a little cliffhanger here to get everybody in. All right. So in your introduction, you, you start off by telling us that playing the long game, eschewing short-term gratification in order to work towards an uncertain but worthy future goal isn't easy, but it's the surest path to meaningful and lasting success in a world that so often prioritizes what's easy, quick, and ultimately shallow. And so in a, just a quick snapshot, you give us so much there about why you wrote this book, but I wanted to, to if you could share with our listeners, why did you write this? I mean, what you're telling us there is where we're going, but at the heart of all this, why? Why this book? Why was it so important? Well, I have thought a lot over the past 15 years that I have been self-employed about what that process should look like. You know, it really is a crucible, right? Like you're you're out on your own. Uh, you uh, you 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 know eat what you kill <laughs> to use a martial metaphor. And so it's a very existential question. How do you, how do you build something? How do you build something that will sustain you? And how do you build something that hopefully is interesting and meaningful and accomplishes what you want in uh, kind of a sense of purpose? And so I've thought about that a lot for me as I was building my business, and I've thought about it a lot over the past five years with the online community that I run, where there's a lot of people who are in the process of building building a business and building a brand for themselves. And more than 600 people have gone through it. So I, at this point, I have seen a lot, and I realized that there are recurring themes, and so often people really beat themselves up because they feel like they are not advancing as fast as they should be, or they have some narrative in their head about like, oh, it should work like this. And then they get despondent when it doesn't. And I really think it's important for, you know, there's a lot of people out there that don't get a lot of encouragement. And part of the nature of, of all of this is that you do have to kind of slog in the wilderness for a while before it works. But I wanted to encourage those people because I think that it is a valuable path. I think it's a noble path that people are trying to do something good. They're trying to build something. They're trying to share their expertise. And I wanted, with a long game, to write a book that helped 
that helped people when they were in that kind of dark tunnel feel good about what they were doing and feel encouraged enough to keep going, even when it seemed boring and hard and like it's not working or whatever, because that's the only way to get through to the other side. Mm, And that's, gosh, something that we can all identify with. So as you're listening, you might be wondering, okay, well, are we just talking to business owners here? And the answer is we are definitely talking to business owners and leaders in that capacity, but we are talking to you. If, if you're listening to this show and you're a leader of people, if you're a project manager, if you're a human being, there is something in what uh, Dory's got here for you. And, and if you are leading, and that's, you know, that's the majority of our listeners we know are, are people leaders. One of the things that I loved about this book, and Dory doesn't say this explicitly, so I want to bring it out here, is if you're leading people, you got to lead yourself first, right? It's a cliche. You got to take care of yourself. You got to be leading yourself first. And it's one thing to get the encouragement, Dory, that you offer and that you're motivated to share. I want to encourage people through the tough times, through the things. It's another to be able to pair that encouragement with a map. And here is how you take the steps through it. Here is what you do in these moments and how. And you do that so well. So let's dive in to some of those hows, shall we? Let's dive in. Yes. Let's dive in. All right. So you break down the long game and, and taking the long view and, and working towards the long view. And you've got three buckets that you talk about. So white space, which we'll get back to, and focusing where it counts. So where are we putting our focus? And then keeping the faith which, you know, is so important and, and we'll, we'll get there, but let's start back with white space. And yeah, I love some of your phrases. You say our calendars are often a prison of our own making. Come on now, a prison of our own making. I mean, I didn't put all those events on my calendar or, or did I help me understand what am I, what are we talking about here? <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, it, it is true. When it comes to white space, there are a few things that I think are probably uh, non-controversial. Just about everybody in contemporary Western society feels too busy these days. I mean, everyone we talk to, everyone we know says, oh, you know, it's so relentless. You know, the pandemic often didn't make it easier. The the boundaries Mm -hmm. blurred. Everybody's feeling a a little bit overwhelmed in one way or another. Uh, because there's just so much to do. And we, on one hand, are very good at diagnosing certain causes of it. We, you know, we look at our inbox and, oh my God, 50 more emails have come in in the last 20 minutes. What's happening? Uh, You have too many meetings. Everybody has too many meetings. You know, we can see those things. We know it's a problem. And also above and beyond that, which are legitimately problems, what I was especially interested in is, well, why is this so prevalent? Why is this so pervasive? Why is it that if we keep saying we want to do something about it, it never actually gets done? And part of it, as I discovered, is that there are often some subconscious mechanisms at play that essentially are, are operating at cross purposes. And it makes it very hard for us to give up that busyness. One is that Busyness is actually a really good response, a not helpful response, but but a response nonetheless, when we are uncertain about the correct course of action to take, or Mm. if there are 
hard questions we don't want to face. It is often far easier to just bury ourselves in doing more of what we're already doing as a deflection mechanism. So that's number one. And number two is that research has shown that it turns out that, that busyness is actually a form of status. And so when we are saying, oh my God, I'm so busy, it actually is kind of a humble brag way of saying, wow, I'm just so popular. I mean, I just, I can't even control it because people want to spend time with me so much. And, you know, we kind of like saying that. So there's actually a lot going on. So we've got status, we've got coping mechanisms, we've got, you're talking about numbing, uh, using that busyness to numb ourselves and not have to the deflection that you mentioned away from some of the tougher questions that we might not want to face if I just, hey, I feel like I'm being productive because I'm crossing things off the list or I'm, I'm at meetings all day. Gosh, that seems like a high price to pay for <laughs> deflecting those tough questions. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, we're, we're all making ourselves a little bit miserable and we need to stage an intervention for ourselves. We've got to do a little bit of a pattern interrupt because one thing I realized, and this is why white space is very much the starting point, it becomes very, very difficult to even begin to do long-term strategic thinking if we are run ragged so much in the present moment. We're just not even going to get there. And so we need to reclaim things a little bit and, uh, and carve out just a bit more space. It's not like it takes huge amounts of time and space, but it does take some for us to be able to be effective in, uh, you know, zone, zoning back enough so that we can see the full picture and make the right choices for us. And so that, that self-intervention, as you term it, it starts with acknowledging what you call the hidden benefits of that frenzy, right? Of, so let's, let's realize what it is doing for us, how it's paying off for us so that we can do that interrupt. You've got uh, a couple of approaches to helping us create more white space, figure out a, a, a healthier way to go about living in life. And, and I wonder if you wouldn't be willing to share a couple of those with us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, one, one very simple, like super low hanging fruit that I like to recommend that we all implement. Um, this is something that takes 30 seconds, but can save you literally, uh, at least an hour a week. So hopefully this is a good exchange, but I have found that a big problem that I used, it's a trick essentially that I used to fall for is that people will sometimes be super vague in making requests of you. Oh, mm. hey, David, can we hop on a call? There's something I want to talk to you about. Uh, when do you have a half an hour? And you get this question and you assume, at least I would assume like, oh, well, this is probably got to be something important. Like maybe they don't want to mention in the email, but it's got to be important. Okay. They think it'll take a half an hour. Well, gee, I guess I better do that. No, the truth is so many other people have literally done basically no thinking whatsoever. They may not even understand what you do. They may not have any understanding of what's appropriate. Oh, hey, David, I know you know this famous person. Will you introduce me? You know, just like no context. And it also might not actually be worth a half an hour. It might be something that they could literally email you that question. They have a half an hour to spare. They don't care. They got nothing on their schedule. They are, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a profound lack of consideration. And I used to defer to other people and assume they had done that level of thought. They most often have not. 
And so the simplest thing you can do is just make sure whenever there is a lack of specificity that you are writing back and saying, oh, hey, I'd love to help if I can. Can you tell me more about what this is about or how I can be helpful? Force them to specify and create an agenda. And then you have the information necessary to determine if it really is worth a half an hour of your time. Or you can just say, uh, actually, just send me an email. All right. That was 60 seconds of value and you're done now. I mean, you know, if you're listening, like I'm thinking of the leaders that and I talk to these folks all the time who, you know, they show me their calendars and I don't know what to do, David. It's wall to wall to wall to wall. Ask every time somebody sends you that meeting invitation or asks you to be at something, ask for more information. Okay. What's the objective? What's the input you need from me? What value do you see me adding? Uh, and let's see, and then you can determine if there is perhaps a better or more efficient or effective way to do that. Absolutely. And if it's a legitimate request, they're not going to be offended because they know that it actually is important. Yeah, you know, you're gosh, actually, David, I'd, I'd really like you to be there because we need your input because of X, Y, and Z that only you can provide. And this is a really important decision. Okay. Well, in that case, David's probably going to want to be there as compared to the sneaky person that actually is like, hmm, well, I actually just want to talk to you about the thing I want you to invest in and give me money. Exactly. And, and those sneaky things happen inside organizations. They happen from external requests all the time. So, all right. So we're going to ask for more information and get clear on that. And the person who's legit is going to respect the fact that you're really trying to contribute the value they need. So they're not going to be off put by that. Absolutely. Fantastic. Very practical, very useful to help create some more white space. Uh, what else? One more suggestion to help us with our white space. Well, I think one of the most important things that we constantly need to remind ourselves, this of course is implicit in all of life, but <laughs> we really forget um, whenever we are faced with a request, so often the mode that we default to is, oh, well, can I do this or can I not do this? And you know, if we're more sophisticated, it's like, well, should I do this or should I not do this? What we need to be asking is always having opportunity cost in our lens. And what we need to ask is, should I spend my hour doing this or should I spend my hour on literally anything else in the universe? That is the correct lens. And we often forget that that is the frame that we need. I'm curious, what are the mechanisms that you use to prioritize and to triage all this stuff, David? Well, you just reminded me of one of my favorite, which is when I'm, when I'm thinking about this. So we say around here, we say mind the MIT, so the most important thing. So knowing you know, what that, that North-ish star looks like and where you're trying to go. And then from there, it's infinite need. As you just said, there are an infinite number of things I could be doing with this hour or this moment of time, finite me. So, okay, infinite things I could be doing. I get to choose one for this block of time. What is that? And so that, that, that lens helps me with that. But the opportunity cost, what's the total commitment? You know, I think that's the other thing that you draw out is the commitment is not just that 30 minutes or 45 minutes or hour. There's the cost of getting there and whatever else you're not doing and then the emotional cost and and on it goes. And then you ask this question, which I just thought was brilliant. Because, listen, I, I say yes to things sometimes that probably are not in my best interest or the best interest of what I could be doing. And you said, hey, get over, it, David, would you feel bad in a year if you didn't do this? That's right. That that keeps it that keeps it hardcore. Right. Because. In a year, there are certain things you might feel bad about. Oh, you missed your good friend's wedding. 
But if it's, oh, you missed your good friend's barbecue, well, are you even going to remember that you actually, that there was a barbecue? Like, eh, probably not. You know, oh, they have them, they have them once a month in the summertime. Oh, well, you can go to the other two. Well, um, maybe, maybe it's okay to not go to this one. Uh, there you go. All right. So would I feel bad about ha having missed it a year from now? And I, I, it's good to put that long a time frame on it. It gets back to long-term thinking, right? So I'm not, am I going to feel bad about this for a week? Yeah, I might but not in a year. All right, so let's move to the second bucket here, which is focusing, and by the way, we are just scratching the surface. I wanna emphasize that there are so many other practical great elements, even in how to create more white space than, than we have covered. But for the sake of time, I wanna make sure we get to some of these other uh, areas. The second uh, category or, or where you spend a, a lot of the time in, our, in a long-term, thinking long-term here is focusing where it counts. And this is the heart of long-term thinking. Uh, and so you you start by, or maybe not start, but you suggest that we optimize for interesting as we're choosing where to put our focus. And I, again, I love that Turner phrase that sticks in my head. What do you mean by optimizing for interesting and why is that an effective strategy? So a number of years ago, I made a documentary film and it was uh, it was an environmental documentary. Okay, hang on. We did not mention environmental documentarian in your intro bio. Holy cow. Okay, back to you, Dory. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you. So yeah, it was it was this uh, sort of documentary short about a woman named Marion Stoddart who led a successful environmental cleanup in the 1960s. She was a housewife that had no formal background in any of these issues, but she mobilized her community successfully. And we wanted to tell her story about what what did it take? What did that look like? So I remember when I was interviewing her, she, we were asking questions about you know, her background and how she became who she was. And she mentioned something that I thought was, was fantastic. She talked about a piece of advice that her mother had given her when she was literally just like heading out the door to college. And her mother said, well, whenever you have a choice of what to do, choose the more interesting option. And I thought that was fantastic because, you know, I mean, first of all, sometimes you don't have a choice and you just have to do the thing, whether it's interesting or not. But if you do, if you do have a choice, why wouldn't you choose the more interesting option? We get our heads turned. I mean, we understand this intellectually, but a lot of us get our heads turned by choosing the more lucrative option uh, that can end in heartache if it is something that... Uh, that is not of interest to you. Uh, and I think, especially in our culture now, there's a little bit of a cult of passion that we have to follow our passion. Mm -hmm. And that, you know that's great up to a point. If you have a passion that you're happy following, mazel, I'm all behind it. But there's a problem that a lot of people really are not sure what that is, or it feels like this very, you know, sort of intense question like oh my god what is my life passion what is my life meaning i don't know and they get kind of stuck and it feels like oh gosh maybe i can't do anything until i figure that out well that's not very productive so i think if we keep the frame of you know just optimize for interesting pick the option that's interesting it's hard to go wrong because you're not going to be bored and you're going to be moving in a direction that feels interesting and fulfilling to you and there's something that makes it interesting, which presumably is going to align with some combination of maybe our values, maybe our intellectual curiosity, maybe 
the impact or difference we want to make in the world. Like there's just some, something's making it interesting. That's exactly right. Yeah. Interesting is the external manifestation of the nexus of values, skills, contribution, all of that. Uh, I love that so much. It it really makes a lot of sense. I several years ago I had uh, I was at a, a conference and uh, it, had, it had pretty much ended, and I was wandering around trying to figure out what to do next. And a friend of mine walks by and she says, "What are you doing?" I said, "Well, I'm not sure." And she just looked at me and said, "Follow the music." It was one of those where it meant so much more than it meant in the moment, right? And for me, that's kind of my internal optimize for interesting follow the Great music story. follow that follow that tune that's playing and see where it takes you because it's there for a reason yeah i love that that's that's very cool that that could be a good title of your next book david well you know what you were the first person to publicly know this but it is a title of a chapter in my next book which listeners this is the first time you're hearing about it which will be out in spring of 2022 so we'll um, talk did more i about call that, that or what <laughs> you, you, you might have well thank you dory i've been meeting to let people know so that it's a good time to sneak it out there so what's the what's the actual title of the book uh the title right now uh, subject to editing and etc cetera, etc cetera, is uh tomorrow together so nice. essays like of it. yeah hope hope and healing and all that good stuff so that's where where we're going there so with as we're talking about focusing where it counts and you know there's okay we're gonna we're gonna optimize for interesting and follow what's in alignment with with those things you have a an approach to leveraging and there's all different sorts of things that we can leverage but it, it struck me that this is one of the things that makes you particularly effective and that your approach to thinking and doing long-term, there's a lot going on here with leveraging. So what does leveraging mean in, in your sense of it and where do we use it? So I, I'm a fan of the concept of leverage, I guess you could say. Uh, I mean, there was an old TV show named Leverage that my teenager loved, you know, but that's another story. That's right. That's right. I mean, ultimately, if we are constrained by these scarce resources, right? Okay, only 24 hours in a day or you know what whatever we're looking at, there are finite limits on what we can do. That that's frustrating. I'm not a fan of limits. And so I like to ask, all right, recognizing that there are some limits, is there a way, is there a smart way we can make something count twice? or more than twice. Is there a smart way that we could trade something we have for something we don't? And I think answering those questions is often a very fruitful line of inquiry. And so uh, in the section in The Long Game about strategic leverage, um, there's, there's points about you know, understanding that we, we all have assets of some kind. And if we want to be smart about it, it, it really, you know, where we tend to go wrong is we just keep building up more and more of the type of asset we have. And, you know, and then we're frustrated that we don't have the other thing. Well, like, okay, find a way to trade it. So I profile a guy uh, named Phil Van Nostrand, who is a photographer in New York. And, you know, it's expensive to live in New York, uh, especially as a, uh, you know, sort of young photographer. And, it is hard to get high paying clients out of the way, you know, out of, you know, just straight out of the gate. 
And so early on in his career, and he's done this uh, to a greater or lesser extent as he continued to progress, he would trade his art. He would trade, you know, he sort of barter his photography for the ability to actually essentially live far above his lifestyle. He was making strategic choices that bought him leverage. So he would do a free photo shoot for a uh, high-end scarf company and they would give him these scarves that were like $800 scarves that, I mean, he would not be buying on his own, but all of a sudden, like every Christmas present you could want is taken care of because he has these super fancy scarves or he'd do photographs at a cat cafe and for free of these adoptable cats and they gave him food and beverage credit. So anytime he wanted to hang out with friends for like a year, he'd invite them to the cat cafe and they could just hang out and, and have coffee and snacks and things like that. I love thinking about leverage in those ways because it's essentially saying, look, we've got one life. And so how can we how can we make sure that we're making trade-offs consciously toward the things that that are satisfying for us? You know, and when you're talking about the the limitations that make leverage necessary, one of the things that you talk, and this gets a little bit back into the white space, but uh, drawing it forward into how we're focusing on the things we're focusing on and leveraging all of the resources and assets we have is those constraints and those limitations are frustrating and we don't like them. And I get that. I mean, listen, I still, I'm a grown man and I hate the fact I have to sleep. You know, I, I'm still a seven-year-old kid when it comes to the fact that I have to sleep. I've just learned I have to be disciplined with that or there are consequences. But there's so much life to live and explore and things I could be reading and doing and who wants to sleep? But those limitations that we all have, when we use them correctly, become the catalyst for innovation, for thinking about things differently. And if we will really think about them that way, you, you talk about how, and I don't remember the, the phrase that you use, but you talk about how those end up driving, if you use them the right way in the long game, to drive long-term thinking and get innovative and creative about what you're doing and how you're doing it. Uh, I can't remember the phrase, but I'm wondering if you might elaborate on that for us. Yeah, I don't remember either. Strategic constraints? There you go. Uh, I'm that's not what sure. It was. Yeah, strategic <laughs> constraints. That's exactly what it was. Amazing. Strategic yeah, I constraints. Mean, it's it's like it's like a sonnet, right? Like it pisses me off every time. Like ah, iambic pentameter. Why? But uh, it's also true that you have one way of thinking about what you want to initially say, and once you realize that you cannot shove your preconceived notion into the mold, then you're, you say, okay, okay, this isn't working. Well, what's another thing? What's another thing? What's another thing? And it keeps forcing you to innovate because you're trying to say a thing. The original method didn't work and it forces you into a new metaphor or a new way of seeing things that, that oftentimes really is more legitimately creative and fresh. All right. And so that's poetry. So let's take it from poetry to the life we have to live in that calendar we have to live it within. You know, so when you're talking about strategic constraints or, or positive constraints, that that notion that if we clearly identify what is interesting, what it is we do want to to do, achieve, be the kind of person, all of that, and the time in which we have to do it, if we're really if we're really basing our life that way, it will force us to start looking at some of the things that aren't working for us. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, one element 
of strategic constraints that I think is helpful that I talk about in the long game. Toward the end of the book, I, I profile a guy that I know named Dave Crenshaw, who's a productivity expert. And he talks about what he calls distance to empty, uh, which is his metaphor for how long you can be away from your business without it, you know, kind of collapsing. Mm. And uh, so distance to empty, of course, is, you know, it's like when your car tells you how many miles you have to go before, before the crisis happens. And so he has put in systems uh, into place such that twice a year, he takes month long vacations and his team is able to run things without him. And, uh, and he actually can step away and enjoy things, but at kind of a, a more micro level, even if you're not, you know, the boss to the point where you can hand things off to other people, um, he talks about, you know, look, why don't we all get disciplined about setting a time when we stop working at night? You know, for so many of us, we're we're working late into the night. You know, that's the kind of behavior that we know intellectually tends to burn you out, and yet we can't really stop ourselves from doing it. And he says, look, it's unrealistic if you've been working till 10 o'clock at night. Don't pretend, oh, yeah, I'm going to stop tomorrow at five. Like, yeah, I, I was just choosing to work till 10. You know, no big deal. I can stop anytime. Like, no, it's like it's like your circadian rhythms. You just like you're going to be incredibly jet lagged if you suddenly change so brutally. It's not going to work that well. But if you can be strategic about saying like, OK, fine. Uh, my latest time that I work now is 10 p.m. Okay, I'm going to roll it back and I'm going to make a rule. I am never going to work past 9.45. And even if you can just shift it by 15-minute increments over a period of a few weeks or a, you know, a few months, you actually can make smarter and better choices. Because when you have those constraints, when you realize like, okay, no matter what, no matter how important it is, I'm going to stop at 9.45 or I'm going to stop at 7 or whatever it is. It means you have to get better at triaging or you have to get better at delegating or you have to get better at saying no, because it's just not going to happen. And that the power of those constraints and really are, it, it's almost like you're running a marathon in reverse at that point, aren't you? It's like, I'm just going to shave 15 minutes, stop 15 minutes. And then the next week or month, I can do 15 minutes more and improving the, the choices and decision-making room. I love that. All right, so as, as we're capitalizing on our positive constraints and leverage and, and so on, um, there is this, this mindset that our current reality is not our fixed eternal reality that I think is so critical if we really wanna master the long game. You know, it, it, it struck me, it was one of those phrases that kind of you know hit me in the middle of the, the forehead because so often don't we get stuck doing the things we're doing because we just project, well, what reality looks like this week, this is it for all, all eternity, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. We, we often uh, do forget. And there's, uh, there's a term in biology that I love called shifting baseline syndrome, which basically refers to the fact that we are we are marking something from, you know, maybe our own lifetime or our own experience. Um, but we forget that's, that's only the sort of artificial starting point. Like things, things have been very different in the past. 
And, you know, like ecologically, of course, uh, you know, it's like, oh, gosh, well, you know, the tiger population isn't in that much danger, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, okay, do you remember when there's 20 million tigers? Because, uh, yeah, actually, there's a lot fewer now. And similarly, we forget, we forget, we get accustomed to things, the things that would have thrilled us sometimes five years ago. Oh my God, I got an email from so-and-so. Oh, I got invited to this meeting. They're including me. They want my opinion. Oh, it's so amazing. Uh, now we're like, oh yeah, whatever. <laughs> we, we forget how miraculous it would have felt. So we forget about our progress. And then without forgetting, sometimes we still operate on the notion that that is an, oh my goodness, isn't it amazing? And oh no, maybe it's not anymore. We need to say no to that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That first conference I was invited to speak at in New Orleans, that was fantastic. The, you know, but at a point in time, it may not be the most efficient or effective long game to play, right? Yeah, so true. So true. All right. Well, let's get into, and again, so much more, uh, particularly, I just want to call listeners' attention to when you get into the book, pay attention to thinking in waves and heads up, heads down mode. And I'm not going to go into it because we don't have enough time, but I really want to make sure that you're paying attention to that because it's so valuable. Let's get into keeping the faith, uh, talking about moving forward despite challenges or setbacks, because this is, you know, the reality of the long game is that and as you started in sharing why you wrote the book is that we all have those periods of time and you wanted to encourage, you wanted to help people through them. So when people are feeling that sense of challenge, sense of setback and gosh, where, can this ever happen? Am I crazy for even thinking what's going to happen here? Where do we begin? How do we start addressing that for ourselves? Yeah. It, it can be an incredibly trying phenomenon <laughs> because we all do get discouraged sometimes. You know, it's uh, things aren't moving as fast as we want, or you get you get turned down by something that you were really hoping for, or someone provides some feedback, often unsolicited, that is uh, not very encouraging. And any of those things can really feel upsetting and destabilizing, and. If you already were in a mode of questioning, that's the moment where you're, you're kind of at risk of giving up because it feels rational to give up. Oh, oh, well, the universe is telling me, you know, magic last words. And so we do. But I think there's a few things that we need to do to try to arm ourselves because on one hand, it feels so novel and surprising when there's these setbacks. On the other hand, if you actually thought about it rationally, like, is it actually likely that you could set a goal now and map it out right now over the next 10 years and have it work out literally exactly the way you predicted it? Like, that See, was I can't, I can't do that for a year, much less 10 years. I know it would be bonkers. And yet we somehow are surprised when we hit roadblocks. So I think part one is it's so important to do what we can upfront to actually elucidate our hypotheses. Like, what do we think is going to happen? How long do we think this is going to take? And stress test that with other knowledgeable people who have done it themselves or who are intimately familiar with the process. Because most often, you know, every journey is different, of course, but it is also rather rare 
that if something typically takes people seven years, that you can do it in a year, let's say. Now, I mean, if you if you have invented some you know magic process uh, that that is the game changer in the industry, then amazing. But assuming you have not, it's a lot more likely to take you five years or eight years rather than one year. So just just wargaming it, so you have a sense of what is coming down the pike, and also giving yourself the option to really look at it carefully and say, well, is this a process I want to undertake if we assume it's going to take give or take seven years? That's one piece. The other piece that I really advocate is ensuring that you have a group of trusted advisors around Mm -hmm. you. Because in the moment, it is so easy for us to get either too discouraged or to sometimes hang on too long because of the sunk cost fallacy. And if instead you have outside people that can be a little bit of a mirror for you, who you trust their judgment, they understand both you and hopefully your industry, they can provide you with honest feedback about, you know, David, this is great. Keep going. You know, this is really looking promising. Or David, I know you've put a lot of time into this, but I feel like, you know, the horse has left the barn here. Like, you know, you, you might be, you might be better off trying something else and you can defer to them in those moments when you're feeling confused enough or down enough that you don't necessarily trust your own judgment. That's beautiful. So, you know, one of the things that that you do so beautifully in the book, Dory, is the end of each section, you have a set of, of critical questions that are so practical to help drive us to thinking about things in a healthy way as we're getting focused on the long game. So when things are seeming bleak, you suggest, you know, why am I doing this? So tying it back to what is the bigger purpose, the reason why it's so easy to lose sight of that. And I'm laughing as you talk about, gosh, well, you set these goals. What universe were you living in where you thought it would happen without roadblocks or detours? And apparently it's the one I'm trying to live in because you know, I'm thinking of the last book, pro- the current book project, the marathon I'm training for, the, the this, the that, the I, every single one of them. I thought, oh yeah, no problem, I, I can knock this out because I know I'm smart and I know what I'm doing. I got a good plan, and not once did it work according to plan. Every time, at every time, I'm still surprised. So apparently, you're talking to me. <laughs> I totally feel you. We are we are so subject to this just by dint of being human. All right. So we're going to tie back to purpose. What has worked for others? And, you know, that uh, you, you share some examples that I thought were beautiful about what uh, of getting into the depth of what you just shared with us is that what did it take other people? And I'm constantly having those conversations as, as we do the work that we're doing. Like, yeah, it took that person 20, 25 years to achieve what they have achieved and to do what they're doing. And the way they did it then isn't going to work anymore because the world's different. And so there's like having that grace for ourselves of, of the time in, that's a real thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, in the long game, I talk about a colleague of mine uh, named David Burkus that really admires the author, Daniel Pink. And he told a story about how he was kind of beating himself up that he felt like, you know, Dan Pink's so popular and my stuff isn't as popular. And he was feeling like so bad about it. And so he asked Dan Pink for advice. And Dan was like, 
um, you know, I've been doing this 17 years longer than you. And David was like, oh, right. <laughs> and so now he has a much better strategy, which I call time handicapping. And basically that, that means like, okay, well, I might not be as successful as Dan Pink right now, but also I am as successful as he was 17 years ago. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so, it's such a beautiful metaphor and, and applicable in so many different ways. And uh, yeah, we've talked to David uh, on uh, our LinkedIn live show that Karen does. And uh, and I have been the David in that equation, but I think I was talking about Lencioni at that point. So yeah, absolutely, right? Oh, beautiful. All right, so strategic patience, this, this notion of the time handicapping, the understanding what it takes. You also talk about thinking in decades as opposed to, you know, we get so tied up in the day-to-day, moment-to-moment, week-to-week. How do I shift to a decade mentality when, you know, so many people are telling you, yeah, don't think strategically in anything longer than three years because the world changes so much. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like this is sort of a both and, right? Like, essentially, when people are saying like, you know, don't don't make plans, the world's changing. I mean, Why do they always talk in that old man pioneer voice? <laughs> it, they they know, just it's, did. It's, it's such a good question. Yeah. <laughs> but they're not wrong in the sense that, again, if you tried to map something out precisely, you would you would not be in a good position. I mean, even if we tried to come up with a one-year plan over the past year, it's like, oh, okay, p- pandemic, Delta variant. Like, you know, you don't see that stuff coming. It's, uh, it's just not useful. You have to be nimble in the moment. And also there's something simultaneously true, which is you also can have a long-term ambition. You just have to hold it lightly enough to understand that you might not understand how to get there right now, to have faith that you'll figure it out. All right, I want to do this thing. Uh, I don't really know how, but (laughs) as the world evolves, I will strive to be directionally correct, you know? It's like, okay, you want to get to Canada. Well, you know what, David? Um, If I let you loose in the woods, just just head north. Like, keep doing that. It might take you a while. You might get a little turned around. But as long as you keep following the big dipper or whatever, you're you're probably going to do okay. And that's that's really what we need to be thinking about. If it's getting colder, you're heading in the right direction. That's right. And this is, I, I hope as you're listening, this is coming from somebody in addition to all of her business and, and leadership and coaching acumen and productivity, who's also a, this multi-Grammy winning jazz album producer, Broadway investor, does stand-up comedy, right? So you, this is a life that you live. You're going after your best life. So it's not just theory. And I, I want to emphasize that for everybody, the practicality of this. So we're talking to Dory Clark here. Dory is the author of The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. Dory, again, we have just scratched the surface, but I want to make sure people know where to go. You have an awesome self-assessment. Where should people go to find out more? David, thank you so much. Yeah, folks want to learn more and also apply the lens of strategic thinking and long-term thinking to their own lives and their own careers. Uh, They can get the free Long Game Strategic Thinking Self-Assessment at doryclark.com slash the long game. All right, and we'll get that in the show notes along with those two books that we're going to hold in in abeyance there for everybody. All right, Dory, last question as we're wrapping up. And gosh, we could I really could just keep talking about this for a long time, which was appropriate because it's the long game. But 
where I'd like to wrap up here is as you reflect on the long game and, and the book and the journey of, of writing it and the passion that motivated you to write it is, was there a particular tool or conversation or approach that was either incredibly meaningful for you or, or gave you the most pause and really made you think? So as I was in the process of writing the long game and, and thinking through all of this, in some ways, it actually was a, a fairly solitary enterprise in some ways, uh, because you were alluding to this before. In some ways, it is sort of a distillation of both research that I did, but also kind of a life philosophy. But uh, a lot of what the book represented to me was it was basically a COVID project. I got the memo from my editor that they wanted to publish the book on February 28th to 2020. Uh, and then the next day, March 1st, was the day that the first COVID case showed up in New York. So from the beginning, it was sort of marked by COVID. And so it was really a process that I undertook writing uh, during a time when I felt like I was kind of the only person left in Manhattan, all my friends had fled. And uh, it was it was a bit of a, a lonely time where I was uh, I was just kind of hunkered down, taking all of all of the effort and the energy and pouring it into the book. So I think that, you know, what what was different or surprising or, or whatever about the creation of this was in many ways, this was a project that that had a lot of quiet and a lot of silence and a lot of reflection in it um, because in many ways, COVID made everybody a little bit existential and think about, you know, all right, well, what should life look like? And this was my attempt to be able to hopefully capture some of that and hopefully offer something useful to others. Well, there's no hopefully about it. I cannot, a listener, I cannot encourage you enough, the long game, how to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world by Dory Clark is worth every penny you will spend and every minute of opportunity cost of not doing something else with your time to read and then apply the questions, use the tools and strategies that Dory shares. Absolutely outstanding. And if you're really committed to being a human-centered leader, leading yourself first and, and using these strategies to think about your life the way that's gonna be most effective will help you be the best leader you can be and ultimately to be the leader you'd want your boss to be. Dory, thank you so much for joining us today. David, thank you. It's great talking with you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.